Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Matapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available, ready to eat, with cold-smoked, ultra-thin slices, as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. 
Today, food and travel writer Matt Goulding takes us on a tour of Japan's expansive culinary scene. We discover the very best ramen broth, which by the way is 50 years old, Japan's amazing cocktail culture, and the magic of great sushi. Almost any sushi chef can go to the major fish market in Tokyo or Kyoto, Osaka, and buy really high-quality fish. But making excellent rice is truly takes decades of work, is what I think most sushi masters would tell you. Also coming up, we make French almond rum cake, and Dr. Aaron Carroll examines the science of intermittent fasting. But first, it's my interview with Crystal King. Her latest book, The Chef's Secret, is a fictional retelling of the mysterious life of one of history's most famous chefs. Crystal King, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's nice to have you back. You've just written a book called The Chef's Secret about the first celebrity chef, Bartolomeo Scapi. Who was Scapi? Scapi was a man who worked for several different cardinals and popes during the Renaissance. And he found fame because he wrote pretty much what was really the essential first cookbook that modern people in kitchens and homes could look at and use as a cookbook as we understand it today. And it has over a thousand recipes in it. And it was published in 1570. And it was one of the best-selling cookbooks for the next two centuries. I wish I'd write a book that was the best-selling book for the next two centuries. (laughs) I won't be around. Um, Let's get to the food. Spices. Uh, This is medieval Europe spices were in vogue at the time. So what kind of spices would they use in a kitchen like this? So interestingly enough, sugar is the biggest thing that was involved and not necessarily on the spice side of things, but over 900 of the recipes in the cookbook actually have sugar in them. And they would put sugar on everything, like fried eggs has orange juice and sugar on them. Did, Did you try that? I did not try that. Sounds a I, bit odd. I, the, that is the thing that I think that is the most striking of the foods of this time is that the flavor combinations are very strange to us. You describe one feast, slices of Parmesan, olives from Tivoli, uh, salted buffalo tongue served with lemon, a soup of cheese and egg yolks. So some of the ingredients are common, but the sauce, it was a sauce of ground almonds, currants, hard-boiled eggs, and chicken livers. Mm-hmm. So you're right. They, they had a very different uh, palate than we do. They would create pies, for example, that would have layers of cheese and then cinnamon and then calves' eyeballs. And then um, <laughs> it, it would just Great. you would just layer all of these strange ingredients together. They really had calves' eyeballs? Oh, they used every part of the animal. And nice. uh, in certain regions, that would have been a delicacy, actually. How do you research the 16th century? What are the kinds of records? They have records of what people bought for the kitchens, the the market lists. I mean, what other kinds of materials could you get hold of to do the research? Yeah, a lot of um, Italian history is still in Italian. So a lot of what I researched was actually in the original Italian. But there is a lot of really interesting information we have. Um, they took big inventories of their kitchens, of the food and the wine that went through the house. And so we can see a lot from that. Also, there was letters that were left behind. One thing that I find really fascinating is that they, they gifted food regularly. Um, Isabella de Este would send a cabbage to her brother with a recipe on how to make it, for example. Not, not a very close loved brother. 
Yes, apparently. Just a cabbage? Great. Uh, but they cultivated, um, they looked at growing food and fruits and vegetables as a, a hobby and a pastime that they were passionate about. And this was a time of exploration in the area of food. And so you would send food and sausages and cheeses from one place to another on a regular basis. Pounds and pounds of fish sometimes were given as gifts. Um, crustatas, you mention those all the time. Are they similar to what we think of a crostata is today? And what is a crostata? Let's start with that. It's a pie. And yes, they're very similar. Scopy has recipes for simple single crust pies as well as pies that have beautiful elaborate tops. Very elaborate pies in these banquets could actually have live animals in them that you would cut open and they, birds would fly out, for example. Sometimes pies in medieval times, you wouldn't eat the crust because right. the crust wouldn't have been palatable. It was just flour and water. Right. It was just to hold the food and, and cook the food differently. Whereas in this period in time, you're starting to see flaky crusts. And this is where you start to see pumpkin pie and apple pie and hmm. quince pies and peach and cherry and pies as we know them today. I have a little experience going back into the 19th century American cookbooks, and it's sort of hard to translate recipes from that period to the modern times because the ingredients were different, right? I mean, sugar is not the same kind mm -hmm. of sugar we have today, for example. Did you try to cook some of those scopy recipes? And if so, did you have problems sort of translating them? The recipes in the scopy cookbook are actually pretty straightforward. Um, I found that the majority of the ingredients could be easily sourced, at least on the internet. So did you end up with any recipes in your repertoire, or, or these were all recipes that should stay in the 16th century? Oh, no. These recipes start to become—you can see where the foundation of Italian food comes today. Uh, there's a pumpkin cheesecake pie, a crostata, that I would definitely make again. It's mm. super easy to make. It's something extremely delicious. It so has wait a minute. So pumpkin cheesecake came from the 16th century Italy? It sounds funny, but— It's not a 60s <laughs> dish. No, it's not. Actually, when you read the recipe and you start— to make it. It's got a creamy cheese, which I interpreted as cream cheese. Um, it was probably something not quite the same, but similar in, in texture. Ricotta cheese, it has um, spices that we're very familiar with, mostly cinnamon. Um, the pumpkin could very well have been pumpkin from the New World at that period in time, or at least a squash. And it's like a pumpkin cheesecake pie, but not as fluffy as we would have in our pies today, but delicious. So do you get a sense, you know, we always think now in the 21st century, so modern and people were so old-fashioned hundreds of years ago. But 500 years ago, if you read this book, and they were quite modern. So do you get a sense that the food world has really moved on and gotten better or it's just different? I think— Or it's worse, maybe. I, I think know. it's a little bit of both. I think it's worse in some ways in the sense that we look at regional cooking and, and organic cooking as a trend in some ways, whereas that's what you did. And Scopy took great care in the cookbook to explain the foods from different regions, and he had great respect for foods in different places. He was very obsessed with seasonal ingredients and was interested in bringing in flavors from different areas. Whereas in Italian cooking today, everything is very, very regional. If you go to Rome, you're not necessarily going to get the same food that you're going to get in Bologna or in Venice. So uh, I think that there's there was a shift in Italian cooking very definitely. But I think that he... He started us all out, and it's different. But we can learn a lot, I think, by looking back at him. 
Crystal Keen, thank you very much. Uh, the Chef's Secret, the story of Bartolomeo Scappi, part fiction and part history. Thank you. Thank you. That was Crystal King, author of The Chef's Secret. Right now, my co-host Sarah Moult and I will be answering your culinary questions. Sarah is the author of Home Cooking 101, also star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. All right, Chris, before we take any calls, I want to know, cheese, what's your favorite? Whatever's on the board. I mean, what? it's whatever's in arm's life. No, I like something creamy. I like something stinky, you know, and I like something aged. That's what I like, sort of a harder cheese. Well, that's very balanced. Do you want to know what my favorite cheese is? Uh, Sarah, what's your favorite cheese? Well, I almost yeah. never met a cheese I didn't like. I'm a cheeseaholic, but it would be, well, it's one of the stinkiest, a poisse. Oh, yeah. It's like you have to put it in a bag, in a bag, in a bag, in a bag in the fridge. Otherwise, your whole house will stink. And then you also really need to take it out two or three hours before you serve it. So your house stinks yeah, before your guests come but, over? You know, they have to be people who like you anyway. So at any rate, okay, move on. No, 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 no. So, so wait a minute. So, so this is the stinky cheese test. You have people come over. Yeah. And you find out if they're really your friends or not. That this is true. Yeah. And it helps uh, if they're French. It's a filter. They sort of know the moment they walk in the door. I do have a few French friends. Who so. like stinky cheese. Okay, time to open up the phone lines. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Kate from Iowa. Hi, Kate. How can we help you today? A couple of months ago, I was uh, at the liquor store with my mom, which sounds horrible. No, that's <laughs> um, fine. But I had picked up a bottle of celery bitters, and she asked me what it was for, and I told her I was going to use it to cook with. And it was like I blew her mind. She'd never heard of cooking with bitters before and started asking me about it. And uh, I didn't have anything to tell her because I started doing it by accident. You know, I thought of something and thought, you know, let me see if I can substitute this and if it'll work, and it worked. So I just kept doing it. I really just kind of needed to know if there was some sort of resource I can direct her to. There is a wonderful book by Mark Bitterman called Bitterman's Field Guide to Bitters and Amari. I think that would be a great resource. So, I mean, bitters, uh, we should talk about, you know, you take some kind of botanical with roots, barks, berries, etc., and then you macerate them in alcohol then you add some kind of bittering agent. And it's sort of interesting. It's like an extract, but bitter. A friend of ours in Portland, Maine, Brianna Holt at the Tandem Bakery, and she uses bitters in her baking. Um, So, Uh for example, a chocolate cake or a chocolate scone, something chocolate, bitters with chocolate is amazing. I would recommend cardamom bitters I use in old fashions. It's very aromatic and works across a lot of things. Uh, Salad dressing, Uh you could add a little bit of bitters. If you want to give a little more depth of flavor. Kate, I have to ask you a question. How is it that you happen to have celery bitters in-house? And what did you use it for? Um, it's great well, in desserts. it was given to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. great with fruit, too. So what did you put your <laughs> celery bitters into? Well, I had planned to make a beef stew the first time I used it. And, mm. of course, you know, you buy all the stuff. And I have you know, nervous problems when I watch TV. I get upset and I need something to crunch on. And I had eaten all my celery. Um, and I looked up in the cabinet. It's like, well, I have celery bitters. Let's see if that works. And it worked. <laughs> I should get a whole thing of celery and put it by the TV. Yeah. Well, anyway, check out Mark Bitterman's book so you can also help your mom to understand this trend. But I think it's a big one. And it's a good one. Okay, because she really seemed to like the idea. and I it's just, a great idea. 
didn't know, you know, because I you kind of have to have, you know, flavor profiles in mind and know what the bitters are to use them correctly, I would think. And there was just no resource for that that I could find. You can put almost anything in a stew. I don't think there's a formula here. You just need to fool around a little. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thanks, yeah, Great. Thanks, Kate. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. Sarah and I are ready to tackle your culinary questions. Give us a ring, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or send us an email at questions at MillStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Andrew from Atlanta, Georgia. How are you? Doing great. How are you? I'm good. How can we help you? Yes, sir. So, you know, at your suggestion, uh, purchased a carbon steel pan just trying to move yep. away from, you know, silicon and all that. And so in regards to seasoning, I followed the instructions, which was wash with hot water, right. do salt, oil, and potato skins in order <laughs> to season. Not sure how well I did, really not having a great experience as far as when cooking eggs and so forth. Yeah, not quite sure. It cooks everything great, but just haven't had a lot of good luck as far as the nonstick uh, capabilities of it. I've tried lots of methods. The best thing, I just did this Saturday, actually. I bought my wife a 12-inch carbon steel pan. I washed it out with hot water, a little bit of soap, outside and inside to get off Mm -hmm. whatever they put on it. I put it on a top of the stove. I put a tablespoon or two of oil, not olive oil, like grapeseed oil or... Grapeseed, something with yeah. a higher smoke point. Exactly. Okay. So the next thing you do is rub the oil into the pan so there's an even coating. Mm-hmm. Heat up the pan on sort of medium-low, not too high. And then as you do that, you got to stand by the stove, and occasionally the oil will start to beat up in the pan. You have to burnish it in with that okay. paper towel. Because what happens is if you don't do that you get a layer of oil, sticky oil on top. So you have to keep rubbing it into the pan. When it starts to smoke, turn off the heat, let it cool down for 10 minutes or so. Repeat that process and do it at least six times, six to eight times. In the same time frame? Yeah, exactly the same. You don't have to. You could do it over a period of days. Then the the pan starts to turn dark, right? It's sort of light colored to begin with. It'll get a little blotchy, start to turn dark brown, bronze, blackish, then you eventually end up with a very dark pan. Every time you use the pan, make sure you use enough oil in it. And then when you're finished, redo that process just once. Wipe it out. Don't use soap. Don't use anything else. Just wipe out the pan with towels, put it on the stove, add a little oil, rub it in, heat it up. And you get this amazing finish. That's really the secret. Now, last thing I'll say is if you do end up with any kind of a crust on the pan or something that's sticky, put it on top of the stove, put some cheap oil in the pan, a quarter cup of kosher salt, heat that up, take it off Mm -hmm. the heat, and then rub that salt in the pan, and that'll take off any crust you have on the pan, but it's not going to hurt the finish. And then wipe it out when it cools down with paper towels. Oh, and one last thing. I don't know if you have a lot of other people in your household. But you need to have a meeting. <laughs> you need to explain. Oh, yeah. Don't use Do soap. not, on any circumstances, wash this pan. I'll do it for you. Yeah. Or leave it wet or in the dish wet. drainer. It needs right. to be dried. Typically, whether it's the cast iron, they're usually left for me to handle. So good. we're all good there. Okay. Andrew, thank you very much. And uh, you'll have a long, happy life with Yeah, no, steel. and thank you for asking that question because I'm on this bandwagon, too. I'm going to go home and do it myself. Great. Well, thank you both for uh, all the information you share every week, and uh, appreciate the information. Sure. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. 
That's my new mission in life. What, to get everybody to do the this? Society for the Popularization of Carbon Steel. Carbon Steel over Cast Iron? Well, Carbon Steel's not light, but it's a little lighter than Cast Iron. It is. And the surface is really smooth. smooth. Cast Iron's smooth, but this it's is It's got smoother. a texture, yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's take the next call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Bob Finney. Hi, Bob. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Pataskala, Ohio. Okay. How can we help you today? When I was a kid, my grandmother used to make the most wonderful thing she called a cobbler. A cobbler, you know, normally is something with the dough on top. Hers was a pouch. She'd put peaches in it. And then I think she poured boiling water over it because it had this wonderful kind of a jelly thing around it. Mm. Oh, it was just so good. And I've never seen another one. And I'm just keep looking for a recipe. When you say pouch, did you actually see her make it? Yeah, she used pie dough. What she was doing, your grandmother, was making a baked fruit dessert with a bottom and a top layer. Essentially, that's what like she a pie. was doing. There are fruit desserts where you're not actually making a pie. You do have a bottom crust and a top crust, and that is a style. Was the pouch an actual pouch she filled, or she just had a bottom crust and top crust? Oh, no, she rolled it up and put it into a pan. Okay, but when you say pouch... What exactly do you mean by pouch? What was pouchy about what, it? <laughs> what was pouchy about it? It was essentially something she had to fill like a purse, or was it just a long piece oh, of dough oh, and she folded oh. it over? Well, she may have folded over. Yeah. You know, when you're teens and your grandparents are in their 80s, you just don't properly pay attention to that sort of a thing. And some <laughs> of us of a certain age regret that, right? Because yeah. there's so many things I could have learned. I think she rolled out dough. She put part of it at the mm-hmm. bottom pan. She probably filled it with sugar and fruit and whatever and then folded it over. And it makes it, sense to me. And the sugar just gave up some juice, which yeah. looked, I mean, and yeah. the fruit, which yeah. looked like, which was probably pectin, right. which is what looked like the jelly around the edges. Yeah. Right. Well, there's another thing you might try as a dessert, which is a galette. So you just roll out a big round of dough, like to 12 inches or 14 inches. You put mm-hmm. a few cups of fruit in the middle with some sugar, maybe a quarter cup of sugar, mm-hmm. two cups of fruit, little lemon juice, and just fold the edges over so the very center is open to the fruit. And then you bake it on a cookie Mm -hmm. sheet or baking pan for the same amount of time you'd bake pie, maybe 40 to 50 minutes, a little bit less, in a very Mm -hmm. hot oven, 375 to 400. That gives you a top crust and a bottom crust with a fruit. And that's a similar concept. I think one thing you said, though, was there was sort of a sauce around in the bottom with some of the fruit leaked out, and you liked that part of it? Yes, I did. Yeah, so I think just do what your grandmother did, which is two layers of dough with fruit in between. I think you'll get pretty much where you want to go. There is one last thing. You can brush the top crust of a pie or this with just water, with a pastry brush Mm -hmm. or even your hands. Sprinkle some Mm -hmm. sugar on top, and that water and sugar Mm -hmm. will give you a very beautiful sort of crackly top crust. So that, oh, I bet. Yeah. that is a great idea. It looks nice and uh, tastes great. Though. Yeah. Anyway. A little crunch. Best of luck. Give that a yes. shot. Okay, Bob. Thanks for calling. Okay, I'll try it. Thanks, okay. Bob. Thank you. Yeah. Bye now. Bye-bye. He's right, though, isn't he? I mean, there's so many times I know, I think as one gets older than 30 <laughs> or whatever. Well, I, well, I mean, we're I just not remember, much older than 30, Chris. I remember all those times as a kid watching someone do something. And going like, I wish I had paid attention. Yeah. You know, and of course you never do when you're 12 years old. No, you're too busy. Regrets. And you just want it to come out of the oven so you can eat it. (laughs) 
You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we hear from Matt Golding, author of Rice Noodle Fish, Deep Travels Through Japan's Food Culture. That and more after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, Crusty bread, it's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um like lemon meringue pie, that would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week, you deserve this pizza, you deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer, it's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is 
kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just wanted to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most Your Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with food and travel writer Matt Goulding. He's a co-founder of Roads and Kingdoms, also author of Rice Noodle Fish, Deep Travels Through Japan's Food Culture. Matt, welcome back to Milk Street. Chris, great to be back with you. You have a quote in the book, this is you writing, uh, which really struck me and I think obviously goes to the heart of Japan and its culinary history. There's an underlying belief that nearly imperceptible improvements are made in the quality of the food by the most subtle actions of its creators. You want to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that for me, the best sort of shorthand definition of Japanese culture, in particular Japanese food culture, is the details matter. You know, not just the details and sort of where do you source your rice. It's your attitude when you sit down to wash that rice. It's the way that you organize um, your cleaning utensils. It's the order in which you go about doing your prep work. Things that the customer, the guest, the client is never going to see, but for them, those are the things that really make the difference. So you're in Tokyo to start. Uh, You're talking about sushi, of course. But one of the sentences that really struck me was that sushi is not about fish, it's about rice. If you talk to any... Any true sushi master, I think that that's one of the main points they try to drive home is sushi is 80 to 90% the quality and the preparation uh, of the rice. You know, starting with where you buy it, following up with how you wash and prepare it, and then, and then how you actually, the hand movements, the gestures, the technique that you put into forming that little pillow, you know, and almost any sushi chef can go to the major fish market in Tokyo or Kyoto, Osaka, and buy really high-quality fish. The making excellent rice is truly um, takes decades of work, is what I think most sushi masters would tell you. And that's why it's really hard to have an experience of that quality outside of Tokyo or outside of Japan, because I don't think the rest of the world has fully grasped that. You know, Instead, they talk about, oh, how fresh was that fish? Right. And even that is a is a misunderstanding of sushi. You know, more and more what you see in sushi these days is not about serving fish as fresh as possible right out of the water. In fact, you don't want that. It's about timing. It's about choosing the right moment in the in the lifespan or the death span of a single fish or sea piece mm. of seafood when its maximized expression of umami and texture have really hit their peak. Uh, you came across a, a gentleman who believes in vintage coffee beans, some of it going back to 1954. So, <laughs> so, so what was that coffee like and why his obsession with old coffee beans? I mean, the, the obsession grew out of 
you know, basically in the wake of World War II and the Japanese were, were transporting coffee for the Nazis uh, who had a taste for Far Eastern beans and Sumatra and Indonesia. And, you know, he, I, this individual had found a store of coffee beans that had been there since 1943 or 44, you know, in a warehouse outside of Tokyo. And by the time he found them, they were a decade old. And he thought, well, the culture in Japan is this idea of motainai, which means nothing goes to waste. And so he had, he had an obligation to at least try this stuff out. And he found that by, by roasting and grinding and brewing this in the traditional manner in Japan, that he actually thought that there was something really interesting about this, that had gained complexity or nuance. And, you know, the Japanese even talk a lot about umami, even as it relates to something like coffee. And he felt that the aging of the bean helped tease out all these new flavors. Now, you know, they, I think that there's probably disputes among the coffee cognoscenti that whether or not this is actually true, but he dedicated an entire life to this. And when I wrote about him, he was 103 years old, hmm. still going into work every day and still running the roasting of this aged coffee himself for two or three hours every morning. Um Yakitori, you talked about, just explain what that is and anything you found surprising there? Sure. I mean, for me, when people talk to me about having a single meal in, in Japan, one that I usually try to steer people towards is yakitori because you know, yakitori is is butchered and grilled chicken. It's usually done over binchotan, which is a type of low smoke, high heat charcoal that can burn for eight or 10 hours, a single log of it. Um and the reason that I say that is because you think to yourself, well, you know, how complex or how sophisticated can a, a piece of grilled chicken be? And what you get over the course of a tasting menu, whether you're at a relatively informal place or one of the sort of high-end Michelin star yakitori joints, is I think a pretty strong rebuttal to this idea that chicken is a one-dimensional kind of boring bird. You have a thrilling, texturally flavorful variety of things happening when you sit down to 10 or 12 different pieces of, of grilled chicken. And yakitori for me represents that kind of ultimate in Japanese alchemy in the kitchen. How do you take this thing that's barely seasoned, add it to, to f smoke and fire and turn it into something um, transcendent? So ramen obviously is sort of the next export after sushi in this country. But you know, I wonder if we really know what ramen is. So what, what is ramen and what's great ramen like? Well, so I went down to Fukuoka, um, which is, you know, the, the main city of the southern island of Kyushu, which is really where tonkotsu ramen comes from. Tonkotsu is the pork-based uh, ramen that's, you know, probably the most popular style of ramen that you'll find around the world. And I was lucky enough to find, uh, to embed essentially with a real dedicated ramen nerd, Kakinuma-san, who eats 400 bowls of tonkotsu a year <laughs> and uh, never seems to to tire in his thirst for ramen. But he took me around Kyushu, and I think we, sp we spent three days and probably ate 22 or 23 bowls of ramen together. And going through Kyushu, you learn that tonkotsu ramen is made, um, at least in the traditional sense, in the same way that breads are made with mother starters, they basically, they use the same exact base of highly concentrated pork stock and to that pot, they're feeding fresh water every day. You know, they'll remove bones and put in new bones, but basically if you're eating at, a, at some of the older tonkatsu ramen places, you're essentially tasting a broth that's 40 or 50 years old, which I found totally uh, fascinating. 
And and you had one place, I believe, where the pork bone broth was just extraordinary. And what 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 is that? What's that experience? Well, you know, I think there's two versions of this. One version is the old school style where it's just clobber you over the head with as much porky flavor as possible, which is usually where they use pig feet, um, you know, to really concentrate in the gelatin and make a very intense bowl. This guy called himself a flavor chemist, basically said that he had spent all these years sort of figuring out all the nuances of teasing out flavor without using, above all, he was very much against using MSG, which is a big topic in ramen circles, whether or not it should be fair game to use MSG. MSG is common throughout Japan. It's not a big deal, but, you know, some people feel like it's cheating, essentially, that you're just adding savory depth to your bowl without actually achieving it through natural means or earning it through, you know, your culinary might. And so he'd make his, the base of his ramen with um, what they call a tare, which is sort of a flavoring sauce that he used 18 or 19 different types of dry seafood, everything from dried abalone to dried smoked sea scallops and various different types of mushrooms to really create this extraordinary depth of umami. My first morning, I walked a few blocks to a 7-Eleven to get a cup of coffee and, uh, you know, <laughs> basically blew my mind. Um, could, you, could you explain what a Seven Eleven is like in Tokyo? Uh, close your eyes and imagine a Seven Eleven in the U.S. and then just throw everything out and replace it with much better food, much better beverages, a sparkling clean floor, a perfect bathroom. I mean, Seven Eleven is one of the three or four main chains of what they call konbini, convenience stores. And they're open 24-7, and they are basically, you know, one of the social uh, sort of nerve centers of Japan because, you know, you have an extraordinary variety of food, things like oden, you know, the Japanese boiled meat and vegetables that they serve in the winter, fried foods coming out of the fryer behind the register. But also you can do things like buy airplane tickets there, or you can send packages overnight, um, your the seasonal fruit that you're sending to your family member. And I think that's one of the things that impacts Westerners, especially when they come to Japan. I think the Japanese are always a little bit, a little bit amused by our fascination with the konbini because, you know, for them, it's so part of their daily lives. And we show up and it's like, what is this wonderland? Well, you said, um, and I think Tony Burdena said the same thing, that the egg salad sandwiches that are prepackaged are one of the most ethereal things you've you've ever oh, had. Is that right? Oh, it's amazing. Bourdain was a huge fan. One of his favorite things to eat. And they're delicious because, one, they have that perfect pillow soft, like almost cotton candy right. Japanese bread that disappears in your mouth before you can even chew. And it's got that egg salad bound in the great Japanese mayonnaise. And, you know, how could you possibly go wrong? Is this the, the bread that's baked with electricity, that bread? Exactly. And, I mean, it's... It's amazing. It really feels like like a bread version of cotton candy. We'll end with a cocktail. One of the things you liked the most was a 12-year-old whiskey with muddled sweet potato and a shaving of dark chocolate. So I'm now asking you to defend <laughs> that, that oh cocktail because you said it was great. That's right. So that's, um, that was at a place called Gen Yamamoto in Tokyo, which is where I had this beautiful muddled sweet potato whiskey drink. Um, he turns it into a kaiseki experience of cocktails where he marches you through the season in six or seven different drinks. 
If it's the fall, you can maybe he he'll find a way to you know work wild mushroom into a drink. If it's the spring, you're gonna be eating incredible strawberries and maybe asparagus pureed into a a shochu based cocktail. But you haven't defended this cocktail. You you, you got to explain <laughs> to me in the book. You you kind of said this was like something you'd like tell everybody about, but nobody understands. So so why was it so terrific? Okay, so I missed the defense part. I was already lost in its memory, but I, I could tell. For me, uh, when you take something like a really strong Japanese whiskey and you pair it with just, I would say probably a tablespoon of the muddled flesh of a really slowly roasted sweet potato, which comes out custardy, um, you know, the depth and sweetness of a really great candy and a tiny bit of bitter chocolate over the top. That's basically served as your dessert in a mm. tasting menu of drinks. Um, that combination, which was something on paper that didn't read particularly well, um, on the glass it drank like poetry. Matt, uh, as usual, a pleasure. Um, I hope you do a bunch more books because uh, we'd love to have you back. Thank you. Yeah, I would love to, Chris. Looking forward to it. That was Matt Goulding, author of Rice Noodle Fish, Deep Travels Through Japan's Food Culture. You know, we think of travel writing as a modern invention, perhaps with the exception of Marco Polo, but the first great travel writer may have been Sarashina. She was an upper-class Japanese woman born in the 11th century, when women of her class were expected to wear 12 gowns at one time and also blacken their teeth. Sarashina's book, As I Crossed the Bridge of Dreams, was a mix of poetry and travelogue. She wrote, quote, It would seem that all people's hearts are drawn to spring. Shall I be left to gaze alone at the moon on an autumn's night? A thousand years ago, a Japanese woman was writing travelogue as poetry. Today, we have Yelp. It's time to head into the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, French almond rum cake. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. A diatribe about pound cakes. Okay. I've made them for years. They're a little tricky. They're actually harder to make than you think. They are. They end up heavy. They often end up dry. You know, you go like, is that all I got? (laughs) I just got this like lump of cake. But other cultures actually take the fundamental concept of a loaf pancake and turn out something actually significantly better. The French have an almond rum cake, for example. It's moist. It has a lot more flavor to it. It's more surefire, I think. So you went into the kitchen to investigate this cake and perfect it. We did. So the key thing here is that they use almond flour in this cake in place of some of the all-purpose flour. There's a little bit of all-purpose just for the structure, but the almond flour has a lot of fat in it. So it adds not just flavor in the almonds, but it adds a lot of moisture here. So it makes for a much more tender cake. We add a healthy amount of eggs and butter. Of course. It's a French cake. And then we flavor it with a little bit of lemon zest and some dark rum. This cake comes from a port city in France where they imported rum. So that's how the rum kind of ended up in the cake. So is there a simple syrup? Like you take the cake out of the oven, poke holes in it, whatever, and you brush it with syrup? Is that part of the deal? It is. So that's how we get even more moisture into this cake. You take it out of the oven while it's still warm because it needs to absorb the syrup. Simple syrup is just sugar and water cooked together. Our version has a little bit of that rum in it, so we're adding a little more flavor to it. And some whole peppercorns and whole allspice. Those get strained out, and then you brush it on the cake and let that cool 
and it really soaks in and adds so much moisture to the cake. And dare I ask whether you finish this cake with a glaze, which would be very French. We do. Typically it has rum in the glaze. We found that we had enough rum in our cake and our soak. So we just did lemon. So it's powdered sugar and lemon. The texture of it is almost like yogurt. So it's kind of a thick layer of glaze on the cake. It's really tart. It's a super nice balance to the sweetness of the cake. Then we finished the cake with a sprinkle of toasted sliced almonds. And I was a little skeptical because I don't really like nuts in my baked goods, but it adds such a nice textural contrast to the soft cake. It's so perfect. So a French almond rum cake with a simple syrup glaze with rum and a sort of yogurty topping, which is very lemony, and toasted almonds on top. Thank you, Lynn. You're welcome, Chris. You can get this recipe for French almond rum cake at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Dr. Aaron Carroll gives us the science behind today's hottest eating trend, intermittent fasting. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability They'll have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot U-S, to learn more. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Tamitha Patrick. Hi, where are you calling from? I'm calling from Whiteland, Indiana. How can we help you today? My question was uh, in the recent Thai-style fried chicken, you used cornstarch over flour, and I was just wondering what the benefits were of using cornstarch instead of flour. I've been through culinary school. I do have a degree, and we actually used cornstarch in place of flour for noodles. I do know that it doesn't quite get as brown, but I mean, even in like noodles, you don't brown your noodles. So what are the benefits of cornstarch over flour? Well, you know what flour has that cornstarch doesn't. Let's start there, which is gluten, which you need when you need structure, when you need that gluten. Right. But cornstarch is a great option when you're, say, coating and frying something because it absorbs the moisture and then that moisture cooks off so you get a very crisp coating. I'm very lazy cook, but I've been making this beer batter recipe for years, and I'm like, eh, it's equal parts flour and beer, yay. <laughs> and then I did a little more homework and found out that if I substituted some of that flour with cornstarch and also chilled the beer, that made a bit difference too, and add a little baking powder or baking soda, either one is fine because there's acid mm-hmm. in beer, I got a much, right. much crispier coating. Now, as for noodles, I can't really comment on that one, why you would use cornstarch over flour, except for a different mouthfeel and a different texture. I think they keep the noodles springier. They don't get soggy when sitting in a hot liquid, like in a soup of some kind. Now, I don't understand the science to that. The science, though, for frying, for example, is that that cornstarch almost becomes like a plastic in a way. It has this great texture. But cornstarch is pretty amazing. It really gives you that wonderful coating. And in French fries, for example, a lot of people use potato starch on the outside, and that also gives you that crispy coating. Oh, that's fascinating. It's really interesting that even with a culinary degree, you know, you don't learn that much about what the worth or the value of cornstarch is. So that's pretty amazing to get in depth into the science. Well, Sarah and I have been doing this a long time, and have everything we've done everything wrong at least once or twice or <laughs> ten times. So when you do something wrong, and then you switch to cornstarch and go, "Wow, what a difference! What a difference!" Then then you get interested. Right. So it's not about being smart; it's just about so many mistakes. And that's one of the reasons it's so much fun to be in the culinary business is you never stop learning. No, I mean every day, just about I learn something. Well, here, here's know. what I learned in Mexico, and we were cooking beans, and the cook made a sofrito, right? So he sauteed some tomatoes and onions and garlic and stuff and a little pepper. And he put it in at the end of the recipe, not at the beginning. 
And I'm going like, well, that's such a better idea because everything is fresh tasting. So I've been doing this for, I don't know, 40 years. And the sofrito, you start all these recipes with onions and And you saute it. Saute it. He did it at the end and added it to the beans. And what a difference. So, wow, you know. So, yeah. see, that's the wow. thing I learned today, yeah. right see? now. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> here to help you. you out, Sarah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Anyway. Thank you. Well, Tammy, I hope that was helpful. Yes, very. Thanks yes. for calling. Thank you so much, Chris and Sarah. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a culinary mystery that you just can't solve, please give us a call, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? My name is Natalie. How are you? Where are you calling from? I'm in Seattle. How can we help you? Well, I had a small wheel of brie. A friend of mine made a brie and mushroom soup, and it requires removing the rind. And I was wondering if you could use the rind in another recipe instead of wasting it. Sure, you could use it in a food processor and make a, a cheese dip, you know, of sorts. Adding it to other cheeses, you're saying. com has a recipe for that. You could probably add it to a one-size-fits-all mac and cheese, too. You know, usually you just eat the rind. But I was wondering, do you think you could take that leftover rind and put it into a skillet with a little bit of oil and crisp it up? Oh, to make one of those little... Like crispy something, little crispy crouton-y things? Frico. Yeah. Frico. I don't think it would melt like Frico, but it might get crispy if you sautéed it with a little bit of oil. I mean, that might be something fun to try. And then you could even add it to the soup as a garnish. Oh, I like that. Or you could bread it. You could put it in some panko breadcrumbs and then sauté it and see what happened. I don't know. I think just roasting it, you know, as you would like baked brie, bake it. And then it's soft and you could just eat it. Yeah. Crackers. I mean, that's the simplest solution. Yeah. You're actually supposed to be able to eat the yeah. rind. Well, yeah, I guess yeah. for the soup, she didn't want the lumps of rind in there. I wonder if you did a bunch of beans and threw in some rinds of that. It would be kind of make it Probably creamy. Probably melt down. Melt down would be kind of nice. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Well, so now this is a challenge. But check out David Leibovitz because he has that. Cheese spread, and one of the things you could add to it would be these So you're talking about fromage four? Yes. Which is like you take all the little bits and nubbins of cheese and you jam them all together and make this mixed cheese. Fromage Typical French. Yeah, because they don't waste food ever. Yeah. Natalie, hopefully that's helpful. That is. That gave me a lot of ideas. And I have another little wheel of brie to work with. Oh, well, do report back if you do something (laughs) unusual and it works. Try my sautéed thing, for example, okay? Oh, boy. The garnish <laughs> sounded great. Okay. And I love frying everything. Yeah, so. good. All right. My kind of girl. All right. Well, thanks for calling. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. Now it's time for this week's cooking tip from one of our listeners. Hi, my name is Emily. When I buy ginger at the store... I invariably don't use it all. So I bring it home, cut it into two-inch chunks, and pop the chunks in my freezer in a Ziploc bag. Then I just peel them and grate them right onto my microplane for whatever I need. It's much easier than trying to use the raw stuff also because the grater works better. If you'd like to share your own culinary hack or tip, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radiotips.
Next up, let's hear from regular contributor, Dr. Aaron Carroll. Dr. Carroll, uh, what's on your mind this week? I thought we might talk about the hottest diet trend around right now, intermittent fasting. Oh, yeah, I've read quite a lot about that. Now you're going to tell me that just doesn't work? Well, that's the thing. It's like, you know, what does work mean? And, you know, does what what is actually happening versus what's the hype? And, uh, of course, a bigger problem is what, what is actually intermittent fasting? Um, I'm amazed about how many people I know, even people who are not choosing to lose weight, are trying intermittent fasting because certainly... The hype is there that not only is this a great way to, to try to get to a healthy weight, but you know people will often tout that it has amazing benefits outside of just weight, that it, it can affect diabetes, it can affect neurodegenerative disorders, it can affect cancer, it can even affect how long people are living. But there's almost no data uh, to support the idea that intermittent fasting has these other health effects like preventing cancer or making you live longer. We don't have studies in human beings for that. We only have studies uh, with respect for rats. There is some data on human beings that this is a a good way to lose weight, or at least a reasonable way to lose weight. Um, There are even studies, I think, that compare people on intermittent fasting diets versus traditional diets, some of which will argue that people will lose more weight with the intermittent fasting. Of course, a lot of those studies are short term, like we're looking at 16 weeks. Um, And of course, almost any diet will let you lose weight in 16 weeks. The the question is what happens over the long term? Let's define intermittent fasting. Does that mean between dinner and lunch, there's nothing, is it 12 hours you don't eat or does it mean something else? That's an excellent question. It gets defined very differently by different people. Sometimes people will say that it means going 16 hours without eating. For instance, stop eating at 8 p.m. and then don't really eat the next day until lunchtime. Um, For some people, it actually means one meal a day, and so going most of the day without eating. For some people, it means taking days of the week, like, for instance, fasting every other day. Or for some people, it means two days a week only eating, say, 500 calories and then eating whatever you want in the others. All of these things are referred to as intermittent fasting. All of them have, you know, positive and negative feedback. Of course, again, it's important to understand any diet works as well as you can stick to it. In fact, I've said for a long time, the best diet for anyone to go on is the one that they will stick to. What you don't want to do with diets is get into a point where you are so hungry that you wind up overeating and overcompensating for what you're there, that danger really is there with intermittent fasting. Can I ask a question? Is it true, I've heard, that people, every individual has sort of a natural weight, uh, and no matter how much you try to lose weight below that, you will eventually come back to that weight? Or do people not have a natural, comfortable uh, weight level for their frame and their system? I think there's some evidence that at a certain point, your body is, tends to be at a certain weight. The question is, is that destiny or not? Our biggest problem right now is that once you get to where you are overweight for a long period of time, it gets harder and harder to lose weight. If we can keep people from ever getting to an unhealthy weight that's too high, then the set point might not ever get that high. Unfortunately, far too often in the United States, if not worldwide, we wind up getting to a point where treatment is necessary and prevention is too late. So your advice is that intermittent fasting studies have shown that in the short term they do work, but your suggestion would be to do an intermittent fasting diet you could be on for the rest of your life 
and that is likely to have the most positive effect. I would say that intermittent fasting should join the, the wide variety of diets that we have that seem to work for some people and not for others. It's certainly something that people could try. It's probably worth easing into it and not trying to do big changes overnight. But there's very little evidence that it's harmful for most people as long as, again, they ease into it. And there's evidence that it works. I would also caution people that there's not a lot of evidence for all of these other amazing health benefits that people are, are, are touting. That is, while it's been seen in animals, has not yet been shown to be true in people. Well, I'm going to go on the breakfast diet, which means Sunday morning I had a short stack, two over easy scrapple and home fries. And I was still a little hungry when I was done. So, And if that works for you, that's great. It works. It works for me. Dr. Carroll, thank you so much. Intermittent fasting works like many other diets, but maybe only in the short term. Thank you. Thank you. That was Dr. Aaron Carroll. He's the professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine, also a regular contributor to the New York Times Upshot column. A study by Roy Walford, he was a member of Biosphere 2, found that mice who lived in a highly restrictive diet actually doubled their lifespan. A more recent study showed that one rhesus monkey on a restrictive diet lived to be 130 in human years. You know, modern humans seek extreme solutions to common problems. Instead of a better, more plant-based diet, exercise, and a good night's sleep, we prefer radical options. You know, my mother claimed that she did not enjoy sweets, but her freezer told a different story. It was full of Haagen-Dazs, and her pantry was also well-stocked with English cookies. Denying pleasure in food often winds up with a trip to the Cheesecake Factory. So here's my recipe. Enjoy your food, eat and drink in moderation, and cook for family and friends. That's the real secret to long life. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or want to binge listen to every single episode, please download Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can find all of our recipes, browse our online store, or order our new cookbook, Milk Street Fast and Slow, Instant Pot Cooking at the Speed You Need. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories. And thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Co-executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Sarah Claff, and production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Samantha Brown. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbob Crew. Additional music by George Brundle Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. <laughs>